welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And this week, we're coming at you with the beginning of the draft series. We've got three episodes for you to answer a couple of core questions about this year's draft with the goal of setting up what is the draft strategy for the 49ers. But first, let's get into the rundown. And we've got a pretty solid episode this week with Matt Waldman. So let's try and get to the rundown as quickly as possible, David. First news up at the top, two running backs, Dewan Harris and Tim Hightower, both signed Dewan Harris on a one-year deal. And I think Tim, Hi- Tim Hightower also on a one-year deal. Um, hey, look, we've got running backs just in case. Yeah, I mean, it's another, uh, you know, Shanahan connection there in, in terms of the Hightower signing. You know, Dewan Harris is somebody that I think uh, obviously they, they, they felt had some potential there and it was somebody that I think has performed well for us in a limited sample and, and is kind of worth hanging on to at least through camp. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you want to go into the draft with at least some guys on your roster and not have to really, uh, reach or, or feel, feel a need to, to take a guy too early, right? Like, especially with running back where with, Shanahan and Bobby Turner I mean they've kind of made their living off taking guys late in the draft and and kind of making good players out of these kind of unsung guys so yeah I think it makes a lot of sense for where they're at from a roster standpoint right now and and uh, I would expect both guys to to compete for some serious playing time Juwan Harris strikes me as like the full realization of Kendall Hunter (laughs) <laughs> that that's that's who I see when I see Dewan Harris is just like a guy that like this is who Kendall Hunter should have been. Uh, and, and unfortunately, his career was cut short via injuries. But yeah, I like I like Dewan. I like his name. I like that it's that it's got a Juan in it. Like his dreads, you know, you know his dreads. I like are his solid. dreads. I just yeah. I do think dreads are and high t- dumb. Hightower's got dreads too, right? Am I? Yeah, am dude. I hey, we yeah. should have an all dreads team. I, I, I do think that dreads are a, are a risky proposition uh, in the NFL. Because it is completely and 100% legal to tackle someone via their hair. Plus, it makes my life more difficult. So in in looking at player participation stuff for PFF, um, it's always nice when you have like, oh, the one guy that has dreads. Now you got two guys with dreads at the same position. It's not, you know, I can't just be like, oh, it's the guy with dreads. It's it's him. You know, I got to pay more attention, which is bullshit. Don't profile, David. Don't profile. Just because they look the same doesn't mean hey, they are the same, dude. I need dreads. I need I need socks Gloves. that are unique. I Gloves. need I need uh, I need arm sleeves. I need. This is why uh, Kyle Rudolph was so great to watch on film because he always wore those bright yellow gloves. And oh, I was like, oh, yeah. there's Kyle Rudolph. Did did there's several Vikings games this year? Absolutely, yep. all about those. Absolutely. So let's talk a bit about then the another position where rather than signing two players, we let two players go. He gone. Nick Ballor, those bottles. That's right. Nick Ballor and Michael Woolhoit. Nick Ballor can take his little T-Rex non-tackling arms somewhere else. Uh, and Michael Woolhoit can, you know, go to the uh, exact same system he was going to run in San Francisco, uh, but not do it, I guess, here. So, yeah, they're, <laughs> they're gone. I mean, if you've listened to us for any length of time, you know how we feel about these two players. I'm actually probably a little higher on Woolhoit than I am on Ballor. Um, but Belor has no business starting anywhere in the NFL. Uh, he should be relegated to special teams. And at this point, Michael Woolhoit, he's a good story. He had his run, and now his run should be over. 
um, you know, for the watch, basically. His good run, as it turns out, was when he was surrounded by a bunch of, I don't know, all pros in the front seven. Turns out that you can stick some guys in there when you got two, three, four all pros in the front seven. You can stick some other guys in there and they'll look okay. Uh, And that was basically Michael Wilhoyt's story. Uh, Would you look okay if we put you behind Justin Smith? And Ray McDonald, and put you <laughs> and next, had, to, next to Patrick Willis or Navarro Bowman. Next to Patrick Willis and Navarro uh, Bowman. Would, how would you look, David? I mean, like, there's a chance I could look like <laughs> I don't. Okay, no, no, it's it's yeah, it's gonna no, it's gonna I, be I, bad. It's gonna be yep. real bad. Yeah. Uh, so one of the questions <laughs> that we're gonna get to, I think, as as we look at what the draft looks like, and we're gonna talk about what we want to hope to to learn over the next three episodes is what the Niners should do at number two. And and the news broke sometime this week that the Panthers were reportedly interested in trading up from number eight to number two overall. We've got no more details right now, nothing on possible compensation. Um, But this is an interesting scenario that could play out. And, and, you know, we'll, we'll talk a bit more about draft strategy in later, in a later, in a later episode, but it's interesting that these rumors are coming out because I think David, both you and I would be, huge fans of that kind of a trade yeah definitely i mean i i think um you know and again we'll get into a lot of the details there and in, in, in some more scenarios assuming nothing happens between now and the draft but uh i yeah i, I think the opportunity to potentially gain you know a, a, another day two pick in this draft especially um with, with kind of the depth and talent that we see here at a, a number of positions the 49ers could use help at uh, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense on a number of reasons. Obviously, you need a partner. You know, you can't just say, hey, I'm going to trade down and, and that's how we're going to roll with things. But you can't um, draft masturbate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you need you can't draft masturbate. You need someone. But, you know, again, it, I don't know that it's as uh, far fetched as some people want to make it out to be. You know, we see every year somebody gets infatuated with quarterbacks. Last year, two teams got infatuated with quarterbacks. Um, that nobody w- was really all that high on. So even though this class of quarterback, you know, they prematurely like, drafted. Yeah, they're, they're, you know, you look at the four quarterbacks <laughs> I'm gonna, and it's I'm like, I'm going to take this to completion. I'm going to take oh my this, God. this punter to completion. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was it. That was the moment. Um, <laughs> we just saw your O face. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just I think it's it's a it's something that obviously they need to pay close attention to with with how this draft uh, is laid out and just the the number of holes that they need to fill. So um, right now it's it's nothing more than rumor and, and conjecture, but uh, we'll we'll surely get more details as we get closer to draft time and start discussing that in a little bit more depth. Final story before we get to the interview with Matt Waldman is going to be that. The offseason workout is going to start April 10th. That's actually a week later than normal. It's like four days from now. Yeah, and, and so the, the 49ers, because they have a rookie head coach, have the opportunity to start their offseason program earlier than most, a week early, actually. And Kyle Shanahan was like, nah, bro, I'm cool. Not ready yet. I got, I got shit to do. Because we're not ready yet either, because holy shit, it's April already. This was, it, It's astounding how how compact this season was i mean from from super bowl to you know really like free agency which seemed like it was over in like less than three days to combine and now to offseason program and then soon draft it's pretty ridiculous it's it's pretty ridiculous how quickly things have gone but 
this is the world we live in. So we're going to get ready here for the draft over the next uh, three episodes. So that's that's pretty much the the beginning and end of the rundown. And and before we get to the interview with Matt Waldman, I want to talk a little bit about what we plan on doing the next three episodes because we have three episodes left before the draft. We will have one next week. We won't have one the week after that. I will be in Grand Ole Mexico well, for a work trip. I don't know that we're sure. We we might try to get we might try to squeeze two in and then we'll we'll post it later. So that that's we a might little, double dip a little. We TBD might do it there. Day. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna try to get um one every week until then we're 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 if you only see three don't be surprised it's mostly my yeah. fault if you see four it's because well david uh basically ran me into the ground uh but <laughs> we're we're gonna try and answer a couple of questions ahead of the draft so that we can help encapsulate what it is we think the niners should do in the draft Rather than come at you in this episode and say, we should draft this person, that person, and this person's our favorite prospect, and blah, 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 blah. We're going to try and answer a couple of really core questions over the course of the next three or four episodes so that by the time we get to the pre-draft episode, we can give you a wrap-up of what we think is the best course of action for the 49ers, given the answer to the things that we're going to investigate over the next couple of weeks. So here are the questions that we're going to try and answer with a couple of interview guests. You'll hear Matt Waldman today. We're working on some other guests for the next couple of weeks. We'll also be doing our own scouting and our own film work to try and give you a complete answer to these questions. But the first one is that assuming the 49ers stay at number two, what is the best non-Miles Garrett direction for the team to go? So basically, question number one is what the hell should the team do Presuming that Miles Garrett is not on the board, because if Miles Garrett is on the board, the answer is pretty simple: you draft Miles Garrett. Yeah, that one's pretty easy. If he, if yeah. he's there, you don't waste any time yeah. with that. Yeah. You 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 basically start writing the card before uh, the commissioner <laughs> can say Mitchell. Hopefully, they have the card ready, like just in case. Like, what if they're just like, yeah. man. You know, we're we're gonna go ahead and put his name on a card, like yep, just, just in, in case. case. You never know what's gonna happen. Just in case, you don't want to um, pull a Minnesota. <laughs> you don't want to freeze in the moment. No, you want to have that card ready. Uh, so, David, what's the next question that we're gonna try and answer over the next couple of episodes? And it was something we kind of you know referenced earlier. And and you know, if they don't end up with a chance to take Miles Garrett, um, should they be really looking to move out of that spot? And and again, what sort of compensation could they expect? Because, right, they need they need a trade partner. Obviously, they need somebody willing to move up. But um, if that's going to happen, should that be a scenario that the 49ers are looking to evaluate? Should that be a goal of theirs to try to move out of that spot? And then, you know, if if they're able to kind of swing a trade there to, to move down a little bit, um, what sort of compensation should we expect them to receive? So the next question we're going to try and answer is whether or not the 49ers should be looking for the quarterback of the future in this draft. Of course, we've signed Brian Hoyer and Matt Barkley, while is, you know, a quarterback, <laughs> is not necessarily the quarterback of the future. So if the Niners, if the Niners are going to draft a, a QB, or, or rather, should they draft a QB at all, who would that QB be? You know, the kind of two two questions encapsulated into one. And, and so that's going to be the other question. So, you know, so far we've got if they stay at two, where should they go? If they move out of two, what kind of compensation should we get? And should the 49ers be looking for a quarterback of the future in this draft? 
David, what other question are we going to try and answer? I think the, you know, really one of the big things actually that, that we want to answer is, is what on the whole, you know, looking at this entire draft class, what are the strengths and weaknesses, right? Which positions are, are, are really valuable in this draft? Which positions maybe do we want to avoid because we don't have a lot of strong players there? And then, uh, you know, kind of based on those strengths and weaknesses, where should the 49ers be looking to target some of those positions, right? Should they should they be looking to get maybe a weaker position early or should they be trying to load up on positions of strength, right? Like, uh, and kind of look at some of those different scenarios and, and try to lay out a general map of, uh, you know, where the 49ers should be looking to target specific positions within the draft. All right, so we've got just a couple, uh, really one other question, and, and the last one left is really who are our draft crushes? At the point at which we figured fun out. One. yeah. It, it is a fun one, and I love that one. It's one of my favorite ones. But at the point at which we figured out what the Niners should do at two, and you know if they move out of two, what they should do, whether or not they should even be looking at a quarterback, what the overall strengths and weaknesses of this draft class are. And, and really the last question is, well, who are we crushing on? Who the hell do we like? Um, and those are the questions we're going to try and seek answers to over the next three or four episodes. So this week, we're going to kick that off by bringing back a friend of the podcast, Mr. Matt Waldman. He is someone who analyzes a lot of film. He's basically a scout now full time. And he's been on the podcast for several years now. And it's always good to get his insights on players because we, we probably only have enough time to look at you know some of the top line players and not get super duper deep. So we rely on Matt to get super deep. And this week, we're focusing on non-quarterback skill position players. We're going to focus on quarterbacks specifically at a later episode, or on a later episode, I should say. So let's go ahead and kick off this interview with Matt. And we're going to go through quite a bit. We, I did jot down the names of the players that we talked about over the course of the interview. We're going to put those in the article on Niners Nation. So if you didn't catch the names or you want to see some of the draft breakdown cut-ups of these players, go ahead and go on Niners Nation, take a look at the podcast article, and and see the names there. We'll have them there for you. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get to Mr. Matt Waldman of the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. Welcome back, Matt Waldman. I guess this is now the third time, third in a row, friend of the podcast here, where you're coming on talking 49ers draft prospects. And this year, we're going to start with non-quarterback skill positions. So, Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Glad to be back. Awesome. Well, I'm glad to see that the RSP, the Rookie Scouting Portfolio, is indeed out once again. Uh, if you're looking for a fantastic scouting guide, I'd recommend going to mattwaldman.com and buying it. It is chocked full of information for any of the draft, draft prospects that are probably going to get drafted here on draft day. So for those that are uninitiated, I know we, we've done this probably twice before, but talk to us a little bit about how you got started in the, creating this scouting guide and a bit about what your process is like. Sure. Um, you know, probably about 15 years ago, I was working as an operations manager and I had done uh, been doing that for about 15 years. And I worked at a company where basically they sent me to do some training and certification on on performance um, processes and as I was doing that and implementing that across our company that had about I don't know about 65 70 branches at the time um, I was you know I was always been a always been a football fan and thought I could apply a lot of these processes to for evaluating um, talent evaluating you know performance for for individuals I thought I could apply a lot of that to um, 
NFL prospects. It, you know, it just seemed like it fit pretty well to to create those types of things. So I thought I'd give it a try. And w- what I found was that I was able to create a process where it, you define everything that, that you're going to be evaluating. You give a point value for it. The, the way that I score these players is based on those world-class performance concepts so that you reduce variation in terms of how you grade players. Um, it gives you a more objectified look at a very subjective thing. Um, and what that does is it helps you build on your processes so that as you have questions that don't fit the definitions that you have, you have to learn how to define those things better. And as you continue to work towards that, you end up building a better and better process. So I started doing this 12 years ago. And, you know, about three or four years in, after a number of changes, you know, um, even then, I mean, even early on, I started to build a following of people in the fantasy football community doing this. And what I do is I create checklists that are position-specific. Um, you know, I have a database filled with information that basically gives you these grades on how I, you know, how I grade players in, in like a checklist format that everything's defined by, everything's on a 100-point scale. And then I use all that information, including play-by-play notes. I actually have, for the past 12 years, have been taking play-by-play notes on every game that I watch um, for each player. And I distill that into the analysis that I do for the RSP draft guide. So the draft guide is really, you know, two parts um, for the April one that comes out. It's, you know, there's about 395 pages that are devoted to, you know, four chapters, quarterback, running back, wide receiver, tight end. And I give you kind of a historical look at the draft um, and how this class fits into it. Um, some stats about recent draft classes um, and how rookies performed during their initial year. And then I start breaking down how I look at talent. And I look at it two ways. One way is that checklist, which is a breadth of talent. And that's really based on, say, if you were interviewing for a job and or looking to interview for a job and you submit your resume and a cover letter explaining how your qualifications meet what their basic requirements are. Well, breadth of talent to me is kind of that. It's kind of a way of saying there's 32 teams in the NFL. They may all look at what they want from a wide receiver differently, but here are here's the list of potential things. And on a 100-point scale, how close do these receivers exhibit the basic skills to, to fulfill that wide range of requirements? So the higher your score, the more versatile you are, probably the more marketable you are to at least get in the door. Um, and then I look at depth of talent, which is a stack ranking, to show how much potential these guys really have to become highly productive in the NFL. And some of that is based on what you see on tape. All of it's based on what you see on tape, but it also is based on um, a little bit of projection. And I show you areas where I think guys can improve or what are easier areas to improve and what are harder areas to improve. And I break all that down in stack rankings, and those stack rankings also add up to a 100-point scale. And I grade everybody for my rankings for that I show everyone um, on that depth of talent stack ranking. So you have those two types of rankings, but then I give you an overall ranking that's in a, in a checklist um, 
type of, not in a checks form, but in like a table format. And I rank all of the individual positions based on that. I also give three-year rankings now based on what I looked at, you know, the past couple of years beforehand in addition to these guys. And everything's just broken down in meticulous detail. So you get, you know, five, you get like 10 to 12 paragraph profiles, but you also get these tables that give you kind of a shorthand of where I rank these guys um, in addition to all that work that I did that leads up to it including a glossary and an explanation of how I score. So everything's done in a way that just shows my work. Um, and so it's a 395-page draft guide with an extra 1,100 pages of work for all the crazy diehard people who actually either fancy themselves wanting to do this type of work or they're just interested to see how these play-by-play -play notes look or how I make the sausage. And I show the people all of that. And then that's that's the draft guide for April, and then I do a, a fantasy-focused draft guide based on fit um, a week after the draft, and I do you know 80 you know um, average draft position data analysis um, versus my my re-rankings based on player fit with those teams, so you can see where I rank them versus where people are taking them, so that you can help develop a strategy, and I give you different fit-based analysis, and I also add a few more players that maybe I didn't watch during during the um, you know the winter months that I can watch you know between now and May, um, so that you may you know if there's any extra guys that may have gotten drafted that I didn't cover, but it covers about usually every year 150 to 170 players. This year's 158 players, and you know it's been one of those things that you know over the years I've I've had people contact me who've been within the league. I've had a lot of media who contacted me who you know routinely get the book um, and like it and tell me what they think of it and and have given me feedback that's been helpful as well and it, it's just been a fun it's turned into a career and this is what I do full time well that's that's really awesome to hear and and you know we had a couple of questions we wanted to to answer based on the, really the the breadth of players that are available because we've been you know we're, we're getting into the scouting pool I think David and I with scouting academy this year but there's still a whole lot of of players that we just don't have time to watch and so when we get to really one of the first skill positions, which is wide receivers, I'd love to hear really from both a depth and breadth of talent kind of at the top, how this wide receiver class stacks as a whole. Because we've had a, a lot of really recent wide receiver classes that have been pretty amazing. You know, Odell Beckham's year is, is I guess, the banner year for getting production out of, out of rookie wide receivers. But at the same time, you know, you've had varying years since then. So I'm curious what you think the wide receiver position as a whole offers for NFL teams this year? Sure. I think it's a sneaky good class. And, and the thing is, is that when you look at like the 2014 class, you know, you're fill, you look at guys at the top end who are, you know, stars or potential superstars, um, primary starters in many respects. This class may have some of those players eventually develop into that, but most of them are probably your complementary starters, um, guys who either play that that you know typical deep threat, you know, who may not have a complete game as a as a route runner. Think of um, you know Mike Wallace as an example, or Ted Ginn's, or 
um, you know, players or even players who have complete games but are used a little bit more in that vertical role like Deshaun Jackson. Um, it's funny you should like mention that. them because we're actually going to play a little game a little bit later where I mentioned those two players specifically. So stay tuned because they come back. They'll make an appearance. See, we got a natural teaser going That's on. right. <laughs> and, and then you have – and then you have um, – and then you have guys who are more your wide receiver twos who are more your possession plus guys. Maybe their complete upside might be an Alshon Jeffrey or Brandon Marshall type who could be a high-volume guy but may not be your top five guy in the league in terms of stat production. But then there's also a lot of guys in this draft class who – there's a lot of guys like that who are going to be your, you know, your wide receiver two in most offenses. At least that's their upside. The problem is is that because a lot of them don't have that wide receiver one upside, they have a lower downside. So people say this isn't as good of a class. I would say that maybe it doesn't have the star power of previous classes in recent years, but it may have greater depth of talent in terms of you know the number of players who have the potential to develop into it no worse than contributors who can play the third or fourth option in a, in a lineup and maybe develop into a, a reliable and even highly productive second option on a team. Maybe even that 1A, 1B kind of player, um, depending on the fit that he has with the system. So I want to focus in a little bit on on kind of the top of that class. Um, and, and when you look kind of around a bunch of rankings, uh, you know, across the internet there, across the draft Twitter, um, Mike Williams, Corey Davis, John Ross, those are like the three names that pretty much everybody, you know, the the the, the air quotes here, consensus top three in this class. But um, we look at your rankings and it's a, a, a veers from that just a little bit. So you actually have Josh Reynolds from A&M at your number two spot with Mike Williams dropping down into that second tier. So uh, I'm curious, what is it about Josh Reynolds that you like? Um, that maybe, you know, other people aren't valuing as highly or, or overlooking or, you know, because you really don't see Reynolds up there in that conversation a whole lot. So what is it that you like about him? Well, I think that a lot of player, people who scout players um, in, on, you know, in the media um, tend to value production a little higher than I do. Um, so, you know, that on-field production tends to have a weight. Um, also, you have former scouts who may also look at players, and when they look at physical builds, the level of how much they, much weight they give to projecting players who fit into a certain sweet spot um, of prototypical size and, and, you know, in terms of height and weight and body thickness – also can get dinged for those types of things. Um, and so when you look at Reynolds, he's tall, he's thin, and he played with a quarterback or a, a set of quarterbacks who weren't all that productive. Um, so you you look at that right off the bat, and I look at techniques that are on the field. I, I don't look at production right away because really to me it's about process, not result. And I've had a lot of success looking at it that way. And then you can look a little bit deeper, and I, I don't really worry about the consensus too much because the NFL, from at least the scouts I've talked to, tell me when it comes to variation of grades at a position, there is no position year after year after year that has greater variation than wide receiver. So there are they, I hear every year that there are teams that have second-round grades on guys, and then there are other teams with that same guy 
who may have a fifth or a sixth round grade on him because he just may not fit every system in in a certain way that they're looking for. So I kind of so when I look at the consensus with wide receiver, I always kind of laugh because the you know we we look at the consensus and I remember years ago the consensus was that Tavon Austin and Cordero Patterson were the top two receivers and Keenan Allen was kind of the puzzling guy and DeAndre Hopkins you know he's not really he he's a good route runner but he's not a great athlete um you know and we look at that now and those two great athletes are you know have put up dog like production you know compared to the last two guys I mentioned when they were healthy and had decent quarterback play um so when I look at a guy like Josh Reynolds what I see on tape is you know, my my range for body types probably a little wider than some folks. I look at guys like Marvin Jones and A.J. Green um, and even somebody like Randy Moss, and when you look at their, their height weight, it, you know, you have wiry, strong guys who succeed in the NFL. Um, so there's that as a starting point. I think the ability for him to add weight is decent enough that if he adds 10 pounds, um, even if he doesn't, I think he's still strong enough. He shows that on the field dealing with you know pretty good cornerback prospects in terms of being able to get off the line of scrimmage using his hands um i think he has good release technique i like the way that he comes back to the ball and he gets decent depth on his stems so that's something that a lot of wide receivers have trouble with and are being you know they have to be taught how to do it and maybe even broken down and built back up and, and his route running is pretty good and I think only going to get better. You can already see the hip bend that's going to be there. And for a guy who's 6'3 and very leggy, to be able to drop his weight the way that he does is a very promising thing because when you can do that, that opens up a variety of route techniques that are going to get you that's going to get you separation because you can play at top speed. And that's what you need against the NFL players. Um, catching the ball. He drops the ball. He has some focus drops. Um, you, you see that um, a fair bit. He drops the ball maybe a little bit more than what some people would like from a top prospect. But Chad Johnson dropped the ball a little bit more than what you wanted from a top prospect. Brandon Marshall dropped the ball a little bit more than what you'd like to see from a top receiver. T.O., he's another one, dropped the ball an awful lot. You guys know that. Oh, yeah, we know so that. When you look at, yeah, but when you looked at what they did production-wise um, at their best, it, you're talking about – Pro Bowl caliber players. And what Josh Reynolds does as well or better than anybody in this class is make contested catches, acrobatic catches, aerial displays of just magnificence when it comes to being able to win the ball in the air. And he understands how to get downhill once he catches the ball too. So to me, I think he's a far more mature player than people give him credit for. Um, he, he reminds me of guys in the range of, you know, A.J. Green and Chris Henry. Um, and then if you think of Marcus, Marcus Wilson, um, another guy who's kind of a tall, lanky guy, but strong enough, um, I think that he's kind of a better version of that Marcus Wilson, Chris Henry type of player. And I, you know, he was a guy that was high on my board since September, and he's just stayed that way. I'm curious what it is about Mike Williams that you think others might be overrating, because in the rookie scouting portfolio, you actually have an interesting comp for Mike Williams, and that's Dwayne Bow. And I thought it was an interesting comparison because Mike Williams is someone who gets a lot of flack for, you know, having a limited set of routes that he runs, um, you know, kind of slants, go routes, uh, and maybe a hitch or two 
where he wins at the catch point. And, and if you talk about Josh Reynolds being someone who's successful with contested catches, that seems to be the Mike Williams kind of put him up in the red zone and, and throw a fade if you believe that fades still work, which I'm not sure that 49ers fans really do anymore. Uh, but if you if that's the comp that you're looking at, what is it about Mike Williams that you think others might be overrating when you when you make that comparison to someone like a Dwayne Bow? Sure. And I, I want to be careful here because we get into like hot take season with draft draft stuff and and people oftentimes go, oh, you hate Mike Williams, you know, and maybe that's part of my generation gap with folks who are younger with the word hate because hate's a strong word for me. Um, and I think of that and and, you know, Mike Williams is my sixth ranked receiver. Well, the difference between him and my top ranked receiver is really the difference between me answering one question, yes and no. Or, or one tier within like one area of his talent. So basically, if he improves on one thing um, that is very possible, he could easily have been the top receiver in this draft class. So the, the differences are small. But again, the different those small differences can also show up big on the field down the line. And so I, you know, obviously I see him as a player who's a little more limited in the way that people discuss. And part of that is the whole overglossed, he wins the ball in the air, he's the big dominant, throw the ball up and he's gonna go get it. There's some things here that I think that we could watch a little a little more carefully about his game. He's going to be able to do that to some extent in the NFL. But he has a 32-inch vertical leap. That's not very big, even for a guy who's 6'4". Um, he doesn't really get up there as well as you would expect. And I think that when you watch some of the contested catches he had, they weren't those type of aerial displays that you, when you convert it over to the NFL lens, that you would say, oh, he's going to dominate at the catch point with these types of plays. Um if they were against an NFL-caliber cornerback. Um, I just don't see that, and Dwayne Bowe was a guy like that. Similar build, similar speed, similar vertical leap. Now, people may be underwhelmed by Bowe, but Bowe's talent wasn't the issue. Bowe's work ethic was the issue. Dwayne Bowe looked very good his first year, um, but he really didn't take the game as seriously as he needed to to be the type of player that he was capable of. But what Dwayne Bowe was great at was running after the catch, making tight coverage plays in stride, slant plays, short screens, um, you know, some dig routes, and then, yeah, the occasional fade here and there. But really being able to either post up on a guy where it's just more about getting separation at the top of your stem and being out and being a little bit more physically dominant so that you can then break back to the ball... And it wasn't so much about leaping over the head of a guy and being Alshon Jeffrey or Calvin Johnson. And I think that Mike Williams is more that player. When you watch, you know, in that Clemson offense, they threw a lot of fades. But if you look carefully, Deshaun Watson's game is very much built on lofting the ball up on corner routes. Lots of corner routes in that offense. A lot of fade routes in that offense. Short slants, sure, but he doesn't have the accuracy, and some wonder if he even has the arm strength to throw the 20, 25-yard dig route. Some of those power plays like the skinny post. Um, You know, you don't see that in Clemson's repertoire when it's in its offensive scheme. So Williams, to me, was more of a guy that's like, well, he's a good enough athlete for us to throw fades to. It, it's what Deshaun Watson does well, 
let's pair these two things together. But in the NFL, I think Williams is a little bit less of that guy. I don't think if you lean on him to be that player, I don't think he's going to be as successful as people project. And I think he's a little bit of a different player than people make him to be, which is he's a little he's he's got a little bit more separation skill in the first 10 to 15 yards than people may imagine. Um, but he's a guy that's more going to be used on you know quick slants, quick plays, um, and on and on plays where it's more based on timing and getting separation. And even though he's pretty good at that right now, he's going to have to get a little bit better at it. So for me, he projects more as a wide receiver too, who may be able to give you that wide receiver one upside in a good offense, or if there's nobody else available and they just have to throw him the ball over and over again. And even then you may feel like that he's just more of a volume guy at that point and the, and the team's really going to need a lot of help because he's not a one-man gang. Now this year you you added something to your overall rankings that I thought was really awesome. You added the the, the tiers in general, the kind of tier 1 receiver, tier 2 receiver, tier 3 receiver. And and you also have a scheme-based talent section. And I think this is an awesome section. So I'm going to try and do a quick fire with you here. Because we focus a lot on that number one receiver. Obviously, we spend a lot of time talking about Mike Williams, Josh Reynolds, and and where you think they fit. But we we do also agree with you that scheme fit is super important. And when you think of Kyle Shanahan and the way he constructed the wide receiver core, obviously he had his number one receiver in Atlanta, but he was also able to make someone out of someone like Taylor Gabriel. So there's definitely a role for players that may not be that true number one, but that fit the scheme. So I'm going to give you a, a scheme category, some of which are pulled from your RSP, as well as players that, that kind of embody that, that's, that kind of scheme fit. And I'm going to have you give me one player, as well as maybe their overall tier that you would put them in, that match that criteria so the listeners might be able to go to Draft Breakdown and take a quick look. Uh, so we'll try and get, there's four categories. We'll try and get through them real quick before we switch to tight ends. So number one, Give me the one player you think would be a good scheme-based fit for a small slot player, someone like a Wes Walker or a Jarvis Landry. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, probably Ryan Switzer would fit there very well, um, and that's a guy that you definitely want to take a look at very quick, um, sure-handed, great after the catch. All right, so then the next category is going to be the big slot. That's going to be an Anquan Bolden, which we're familiar with here in San Francisco, or a Jordan Matthews. Yeah, um, definitely a good, a good option there. I'm going to say, uh, you know, I could actually say Mike Williams could probably fit in that category and be a very interesting <laughs> one. But let's go with somebody a little bit different because that's an unconventional take for a big slot player. So for a big slot player that I think would be interesting in that regard, he's not huge, but he plays big, and that's our Darius Stewart, 5'11", 204. He plays like he's 6'2", 225, um, very physical, but he can also win deep. So I thought you were going to put our Darius Stewart in the small slot area, but I did notice that you liked you liked the way he played big. So it's interesting you'd put him in big slot. Um, so let's move to the the running back wide receiver hybrid. This is the Percy Harvin or the Tyreek Hill variety of wide receiver. Sure, and you know there certainly a lot of people will want to say Curtis Samuel. That's like the obvious answer, but he reminds me more of a of a Randall Cobb guy. So I'm going to throw a curveball to you that he's probably not even going to get drafted. But I'm going to go ahead and, and add this player in here because I think he's the most intriguing player I have ever watched. Um, his name is Samaji Grant out of Arizona. Um, he's 5'9", 173, 
and he got he was a running back in high school who had a season I think he averaged something crazy like over 10 yards or eight yards a carry or something and they used him down the stretch this past year and I thought he was a phenomenal running back um he had some issues um holding on to the ball but he reminded me a lot of the of Eric Metcalf if you remember Eric Metcalf out of Texas played with the Browns and the Falcons he's he was a slot receiver who could go deep and play outside very 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 fast and but his ability to run between the tackles um was very sophisticated, and I think that uh, he could be a really surprising free agent option. All right, and then the last category here for wide receivers is going to be that deep threat. Of course, we released Torrey Smith, uh, and he would be someone who would fit this category. Also, Mike Wallace, two names that you mentioned earlier on the podcast. So we're coming through on that tease. Who <laughs> are your deep, th- deep threat wide receivers that you think could be uh, grabs here in the draft this year? Well, sure. I mean, we all know John Ross is, is the ultimate deep threat on this board right now, so we can skip over him. Um, some guys that I think that would be worthwhile talking about in that range um, who could offer you that that deep ball ability. Um, Isaiah Ford isn't a, unbelievably fast, but he's very good at getting on top of you early, and he makes contested plays well. So he's certainly in that in that cap in that category there. Um, I also think that you know. Another guy that might fit into that range. You know, um, Katie Cannon. Katie Cannon, the only problem is is that I call Katie Cannon box of chocolates because if you ever watch Forrest Gump, the, the whole the whole phrase box of chocolates, you never know what you're going to get. That's kind of him from play to play, um, week to week. But when he's focused and on, he's fantastic. Four four one speed, makes plays in the air against, um, you know, tight coverage. Um, he's not afraid to take a hit and come down with the ball. If he's focused on every play and figures out how to be a mature professional, this guy's got a lot of talent. So I wanted to switch gears a little bit and, and start looking at, at tight end, the other pass catchers you know, among the, the groups that we're going to be talking about today. And I think this is a really interesting tight end class. It's, somebody, you know, it's a class that's getting a lot of hype. Um, you know, People talking about one of the better classes in recent history. We saw, you know, athletically they tested incredible. There were there were six players that tested out uh, with a 72nd percentile spark score better at the combine. So I, I'm curious how much so for, for a team like the 49ers specifically, who right now really don't have a, a reliable tight end on the roster. They, they don't have anybody um, that really strikes you as a long term option at that position. But we know that Kyle Shanahan likes to you know, have multiple tight ends on the field and, and that's going to be a valued position in this offense. So when you consider, you know, both the talent of this draft class at tight end and, you know, the, the relative positional value, like how much of a priority would you be putting on grabbing a tight end from this class in this draft if you, if you were kind of running the show for this team? Well, I like the fact that John Lynch made the statement that he wants tough football players and guys who want who you know who play with that physical tough mentality, um, and that's important. And then when you look at this team and who they have, you got Brian Hoyer and Matt Barkley quarterback. So what that tells you is that you're looking for um, play, you know timing routes, um, not just see it throw it routes, but guys who are going to these are guys who throw with anticipation and. He also added receivers like Pierre Garçon, who is a good route runner who can catch the ball with that, you know, and get open and be where he's supposed to be. And the same can be said about Jeremy Curley. Um, 
So you, you would think they're going to be adding more receivers who can make those types of plays on pinpoint passes and be good route runners and not just um, athletes who can jump and win fade, fade routes. Because as you, saw, you guys um, referenced, that's a very limited way of playing football, um, and it's not going to um, open up your offense extremely well. Um, so, you know, these veterans will probably be able to hold it down and maybe help out some of these younger guys on your depth chart. You know, the Bruce Ellingtons, maybe if DeAndre Smelter's open, um, healthy enough that maybe he could be able to grow a little bit more. DeAndre Carter's an intriguing guy. So, you know, maybe one of those guys can emerge um, and, and be able to offer a little bit more of a complete package type of player within a year or two with that tutelage. But with that in mind, you know, with tight end, the, the difficulty is, is do you want to move tight end? Um, who is, you know, like Evan Ingram, who could be dynamic and play wide receiver for you? Um, or do you want a guy who is going to be able to block and who can maybe do both for you? And Evan Ingram isn't that guy who's going to do both for you right out the gate. He's not going to help you right away other than just as a wide receiver or move tight end who just who does very minimal blocking and you'd be schemed into optimal situations kind of like hunter henry for san diego last year who doesn't block extremely well but they didn't need him to they could just kind of have him fake the funk and and get him out there into the open area and and target him where they needed um so for me knowing that john lynch likes physical players to me, I think Evan Ingram has the effort but may not be that complete package for them. If he were available, they might look at him. Bucky Hodges, while I really like his game, might be a little considered a little bit on the softer side by some. I you know, I can't say I saw that to that extent. Um, but the guy, you know, if they're not gonna get O. J. Howard, who obviously is you know, the is the number one prospect on my board. I the upside of him as a receiver is a little overstated, or at least not overstated, but maybe more of a projection than what we saw on film. On film, there wasn't enough to say, yeah, he's going to be a superstar receiver who makes Jimmy Graham-like, Rob Gronkowski-like plays on the football. We just didn't see that, and he wasn't featured that way. Um, But a guy that maybe if they take receiver early, if they focus on other positions early that I really like is Seathan Carter, out of Nebraska, um, who I think is a very physical blocker. He's a good blocker. He's strong for his size at 241, so he's a little undersized, but he's got good technique. He can really move people. You can move him around the formation, and I think he's the most sudden route runner of the of the wide receivers when it comes to the type of routes you see run in the NFL underneath linebackers and safeties, which are those stop routes. Um, you know, also being able to find the open crease on you know the type of routes that um shanahan ran in atlanta which is some of the filtering out into the backfield off play action and running those crossers and finding that open spot and knowing how to position your body to catch the ball um so that you can take contact but still get downfield or avoid you know having the the defender disrupt the play so i think you know a, right away, a player who might be able to help right away as a second tight end could be Carter, who could grow into their main option and be a surprising, effective starter. But then guys who also block well, Jeremy Sprinkle would be a very nice option because of the fact that he offers that kind of Dwayne Allen type of play. He can you know, move him around the formation as an H-back. He has to get a little stronger up top, but he can block. He's smart about pass protection. 
and he is a decent run blocker and you can use him out of the backfield and he can get into the intermediate seam for you with his type of speed. Um, so it's, it's uh, interesting you mentioned Jeremy Sprinkle because yeah. his physical comp is actually Austin Hooper. When you, when you go to mock draftable and you look at his measurables and you say, who does this yep. person comp with? It's Austin Hooper and he's someone that you actually listed as a comp for him. You've got a section in the RSP where you compare players to kind of some yep. historical players and Austin Hooper is one of those players that Sprinkle comps with and Hooper doesn't have a huge stat line this year in Atlanta, but he was and very, very productive in the Super Bowl against the Patriots. And and that could be a model for a kind of mid-round to maybe even late-round draft uh, because this is a loaded tight end class. When you've got five tight ends in your top tier uh, of rankings with, you know, Seath and Carter kind of rounding it out at four. And then Sprinkle is eighth in that second tier. And so if you're thinking maybe fourth round-ish, when you're six, seven, eight tight ends deep, this is someone who could, you know, produce as a rookie but not be overly dominant and grow into a larger role with a with a significant role in Kyle Shanahan's offense. So I thought that was an interesting comp, and I was going to bring him up had you not brought him up, but here he is, Mr. Sprinkle, uh, already a nominee for the All Name Team just because of how awesome his name is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and it's a and it's a good looking it's a good looking player in terms of what he offers on the field. Um, so that it's definitely a nice look when you can have a player who might in the past couple of classes might have been one of the top two to three tight ends being number eight on a board. And then you might even have a guy like Eric Saubert out of Drake who is uh, more of a receiver who could give you kind of that Greg Olson-like dynamic, maybe not as good as Greg Olson uh, is and may not ever become that, but he has some of that ability um, as a pass catcher, being able to stretch the seam, and he seems to have the size and the ability to develop into a blocker. But that's the hardest part. We talk about guys, lots of guys can catch the football and look pretty good doing it at the tight end position, but it's how well they block and how good they can make that transition because it's a that's the tough transition for being a tight end in the NFLs, whether you can you can actually block these types of players and do what you're supposed to do and not just be a, you know, the only way you're going to be that wing back who, you know, gets to shield block on the backside and, and, you know, do some things where you're schemed as if you're an out-of-this-world receiver and or your team ha- already has a great tight end that can block and you don't have to right away. Um, so, you know, for the for the 49ers, they have enough decent players at tight end who can block for them and at least get the job done that they may go that move route. But I would think that if if they're thinking the way you guys are talking, then it would be let's find a let's find a complete player and hopefully he can help right now and then develop into something even more later. Well, I think that com- that complete player is probably right. Shanahan ran 13 personnel about 8% of the time last year and while typically that's a run heavy uh, formation, it was a 50-50 split for Shanahan absolutely. between run and pass. So you're I think you're absolutely right. You're probably not looking just for a move guy, but you're looking for someone who can both hold up at the point of attack. And also get out and, and, and get into space or maybe hit that seam. Uh, but David, I think I, I ever so eloquently cut you off. Uh, what, what <laughs> no, were you no, say? I mean, just to add on to those points, I mean, you mentioned the, the numbers with the 13 personnel and the 50-50 split. And that's really, you know, I think where the value is there with, with some of those tight ends. If you get a guy that can do both because it, it kind of hides your run pass tendencies, right? Like you, you like to be able to come out in a run heavy look 
with run heavy personnel on the field and and still be able to throw the ball. You know, you think about the the Harbaugh teams and having uh, Vernon Davis and Delaney Walker on the field at the same time. And that was one of the things that, you know, made their offense go was was being able to get in those run heavy sets, but still being able to stretch the field vertically with with those guys and, and not really lose anything in the run game, though, because they were such good blockers. So, yeah, I, th- I think that seems to be the type of guy that I would I would really more expect them to target. Now, one thing I think overall that I thought was interesting, you know, when we're trying to contextualize really what the talent is in this draft, we talked a bit about wide receivers and you said that wide receivers and there's not a whole lot of, you know, elite number ones that are really going to fly off the board, but it still might be a, a really deep class if you're looking at what a wide receiver can do for you in terms of scheme fit. This tight end class, though, I mean, you've got six players that tested out with a 72nd percentile spark score or better at the combine. That's pretty ridiculous. And and when you think of other classes where this comps to, you you had some interesting comments about the class that Aaron Hernandez was a part of, uh, mostly because you know if he wasn't crazy and a serial killer, he would have headlined uh, a he would have been one of many headline tight ends in that year's class that went on to have a long and illustrious career. And when you think of what Bill Belichick was trying to do with the tight end position, it, it really is kind of a, a really interesting thing that you can do for your offense if you do have skill position players at the tight end spot that can both block and run. And so where would you say this class stacks up with in recent history in terms of the talent and the depth at this position? Right, and the key word is potential based on their talent. Um, how they will actually perform, we don't know. Injuries, off-field, all that kind of thing. But Hopefully there's no serial killers in this class. Yeah, hopefully there are not. Um, so, but you know, when you look at this class based solely on talent and potential, it could be among the best that I've seen, um, and it could be the best in the, at least thirty years. When I look back in those classes of of that period of time, um, when I look at the you know my top five or six players in this on my board were you know were better than my than my last three years of guys um, in terms of where I ranked them. Um, so the potential is really there for you to have at least, you know, I think there's at least four out of the first six who could be every down all around tight ends and threats as receivers also. And then there's probably two to three of those guys, maybe, yeah, about three of those guys who could be excellent move tight ends as kind of wing backs and part-time receivers. Um, and a couple of those guys, if the team just says, look, we're going to make them wide receivers, um, good luck trying to stop them with a cornerback. Um, I don't blame them if they do that. So that's how rich this class is. Um, it's just one of the warning signs you have to remember is that, you know, top tight end production as a receiver is few and far between. Even though we've had more and more of it in recent years, the best the best player in recent memory and, and most people, you know, I would say not really in yours or my memories, other than if we were watching grainy black and white clips, is Mike Ditka with his 1,000-yard rookie year. Um, so, you know, looking for them to give you great production right off the bat, that's a tough thing to ask for, even as talented as this one is. But if there's a group that has potential to do it, this would be the one. Let's switch quickly to running backs. And one of the picks that's been gaining a little bit of traction recently for the 49ers at the number two option is Leonard Fournette. And I, I'm 
I will go ahead and put it out there. I'm not a huge fan of Leonard Fournette at number two, not because I'm not a fan of how he plays the game necessarily, but just because I, I don't think a running back, I don't think the value of drafting a running back is high, is that really good at number two when you can get an edge guy or a really a potential game-changing player at some other position. You can manufacture production at the running back position, I think. So there's no need to get him at number two. But I'm curious what you see as the fit for someone like a Leonard Fournette, especially considering the wide zone scheme that Kyle Shanahan is going to run in San Francisco. Do you think that Fournette would be a good pick for the 49ers too? No, absolutely not. Not remotely. Um, could he do it? Yeah. But um, forgive me, but I've been writing a 1,600-page book in the past few months. <laughs> um, something happened to Carlos Hyde. Um, right? You Thank know, you. You know? Yeah, I know. You know? I know. I mean, no, I know. I, we I love Carlos Hyde. I love him. Yeah. I watched Carlos Hyde last year, and I happened to watch Tim Hightower last year, too, and he was pretty darn good. And I had a really nice grade for Dewan Harris, who actually played reasonably well, who they seem to be high on as a guy they can develop. And if Mike Davis decides to be able to continue working and he can continue working hard and stay healthy, I thought he had a ton of talent himself. Um, so the idea that Leonard Fournette may get there and it's a recent development sounds to me like um, – the rumor mill in overdrive um, because, and, and then also the fit because Leonard Fournette, when you look at a wide zone scheme and I've, you know, I watch the Falcons on a regular basis cause I live here in Atlanta. Um, you, when you look at those types of schemes where that works best is when you have a running back who can make very sudden changes of, of direction at the line of scrimmage to be able to either bounce or cram or cut back the play. Bounce, bang, and bend. That means we talked. That's we had it on, right. a perv- on a previous episode. We talked about the zone run, and, and that's it. It's bounce, bang, bend. That's right, and that means that you're not making one cut to the next gap over. You might be t- making a cut two gaps over. You might have to make two to three cuts and make very creative moves to find that open space and create late at the point of attack and the run. Now, in contrast. In a man scheme or in a power scheme where you're going to run to one gap and the job is to just manipulate as much as you can to just get into that gap and hit it hard and use your speed and power to be able to be a sledgehammer through it, that's Leonard Fournette's game. You know, the way gap is run, just imagine, I've been using this analogy a fair bit with Fournette, but imagine a toll booth with one of those toll booth gates as the crease and a cement truck with no brakes going about 80 miles an hour through it. That's Leonard Fournette in a gap style scheme at his best. And that's what you're really looking for is that you're not looking for that cement truck to try and like swerve over into the next toll booth lane. You know, he'll probably tip over, you know, it'll probably, you know, and it'll be a mess, but he can go through that one crease and run through a lot of contact, and he accelerates into contact better than any back I've seen in in, in a couple of years at least. Um, and he's nifty enough that he can get to the next gap over, but he's not going to – you want him heading downhill and adjusting his stride just enough to, to set up the angle a little bit of where he intends to go. You don't want him stopping his momentum, turning sideways, or jump-cutting 
a wide amount of gaps because he doesn't have that kind of bend in his hips. Um, so it's a different style of running, and it's a better fit for a man or a gap scheme. And that's not what Kyle Shanahan runs. That's why I always thought the Tevin Coleman pick was kind of ridiculous the first year because even though he ran in an outside zone scheme at Indiana, he wasn't good at it. And everyone thought he was going to take over for Devonta Freeman, who was excellent at it. And it, it took Coleman a couple of years to figure out how to be more patient and use his footwork a little bit better. And he's still not great at it. He's gotten better, and he's a good player. And kudos to Shanahan for figuring out how to use him um, in a way that he was more of the receiving threat, the guy that you put out there in space. Um, but he's still got a little bit of ways to go to be a zone runner in a pro scheme and I think that Fournette just he can do some of that but that's not his strength you don't you don't ask a cement truck to do that you you know maybe a maybe a street bike you know you (laughs) ask to you you can have that weave around there but when you have a cement truck you could put a dumpster in the middle of that uh in the middle of that toll booth lane and that cement truck's going to run right through it and just knock it to the side and there are some pretty good dumpster-sized defensive tackles who are going to learn that if they let Fournette run downhill in a gap scheme. What's funny is in your RSP, you talk a bit about some comps for Fournette, and you mentioned a not terribly favorable comp to, to a few people who were super high on Fournette. And you, t- you mentioned Tyrone Wheatley, and you said well, when you mentioned his name, you would have thought you tried to sneak on an LSU campus late at night and made its tiger with a bear. Which yeah. when, when I read that, I just I kind of chuckled a little bit because I know how big of a deal Mike the Tiger is at LSU, and I just if if anyone ever actually tried to do that, I I could imagine the vitriol that that would ensue. So I I can imagine just what you got the the amount of side eye you got when when you made that Tyrone Wheatley comp. So I think that's a pretty funny line yeah. from from the RSP. I appreciate it. it's funny, but it's funny because I had like. Guys, you know, Chad Ryder out of, you know, who works at NFL Network, used to work for CBS. He was like, I love that Tyrone Wheatley comp a couple of years ago when I made it. And then, like, you know, when I made the Stephen Davis comp, which is the one that I really like, and I think Stephen Davis is a very underrated back, you know, I had a scout tell me, he was like, I think it's the best comp I've heard, pro scout or just anybody on the internet. And he's like, because I've got some pro scouts who are so polarized in him, on him, some think he's Jim Brown something some think that he's trash you know and it's just like it's that wide of a range with him yeah i I think it's really more in between so let's let's switch gears a bit and talk about someone who can switch gears and that's christian mccaffrey and and we talked about christian mccaffrey before on twitter a lot and on the show really in in the context of his of his skill set and how valuable it is considering it hasn't been incredibly difficult to find good receiving backs on day two or day three even recent examples for the 49ers, you look at someone like Dewan Harris, you look at Sean Drone, you look at players who have been able to produce out of the backfield, catching the football, and, and that's what Christian McCaffrey would do, right? The question is, is he an every down back or is he a third down back? And, and even for the 49ers, you've got someone like Kyle Juszczyk, who is probably going to fill a little bit of that third down role. So where would you value Christian McCaffrey's skill set based on what you've seen on tape? And where would you draft him comfortably, given the skill of both the and the running back position as a whole in this draft, and also the value of the running back position in general in the NFL? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I I love how we talk about the value of the running back position as being kind of de- it is being devalued, and it is to some extent. But I, I think some of that too is that you know the talent level, while it's still very strong, um, you know, all these multiple looks and the way that we go pass, 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 pass. Um, you, you know, it that's kind of the devaluation of it, and the devaluation of it. I would say the root causes is the ego of offensive coordinators and owners who really want to have a, a pass-happy league. Because when we look back on it, um, you know, Frank Gore, look at, you know, he was he was a big reason why your offense was able to get to a Super Bowl. You know, Marshawn Lynch was a big reason why the Seahawks won a Super Bowl. Um, LeGarrette Blunt is a stabilizing force <laughs> for that everyone thinks is just a bad running back who the Patriots keep going back to. No matter who they bring in, LeGarrette Blunt's still there and still making plays. Um, you know, so power running isn't gone. Some teams just go, you know what, we're not trying to be flashy. We're trying to win. And sometimes winning means not doing the thing that's going to make our owner be really excited and look like this flashy guy around town because he's got this hot-looking offense um, that throws the ball all over the yard. Um, and so, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of contrarian about that whole idea about the running back thing. So if you think Christian McCaffrey is a, you know, a world-class running back, then you got to take him early. Do I think he's that? I'm not as high on him as other people are who think he could be what Reggie Bush is going to be, should have been, should have become. Um, you know, I think he's Brian Westbrook, and I loved Brian Westbrook coming out. Brian Westbrook is probably the reason why I write the rookie scouting portfolio. Um, he was probably the, you know, the inspiration for me even getting involved in writing about football. And but that's a story for another time. But he was a terrific player who could have, who could be an every down back ran well between the tackles, um, and for a while had that opportunity to play almost in that you know primary role for Andy Reid's West Coast version of, of an offense in Philadelphia. And I think that McCaffrey has that kind of upside. Um, and so for me, I would look at a team that – I would want a team that's fairly multiple in its attack. So you're looking at a team that would be able to move the tight end around or have a – you know, have the setup that the 49ers are trying to to develop here. You know, they've got the bones in place, but do they have all the talented cogs in place to really make it, you know, make this whole thing sing? And they're not there yet, but you can see where they're heading with it. And I think that McCaffrey would be a good fit in an outside zone attack um, because he certainly has the speed and the cutback ability to run zone very well. Um, And then you can also work him out of the backfield and he can be – either your Devonta Freeman or your Tevin Coleman in, in those types of roles. So I like him in those in, in that kind of a look. So a zone scheme, a West Coast offense. I mean, he played in the most predictable um, – how not predictable. At Stanford, Stanford is the pro style to end all pro style sets in college football. It doesn't take any imagination uh, as a scout to look at a player in there who's playing well and go – Oh, he can play in the NFL. That's why he's there. You know, he probably could have played. He probably could have had bigger numbers at Texas Tech or at Baylor 
because of what he would do in a spread with with that great athletic ability. But then you'd have teams going, Scott's going, well, I don't know if he could play it in an NFL scheme and run between the tackles because they got those wide line splits, you know, at those, you know, Big 12 schools that play that kind of stuff. And he's a bit of a projection here. I've got questions about that. At Stanford, with the controlled scrum of the I formation and those tight, uh, you know, those tight creases and everyone knows it's a pro-style set, uh, you know, I'm sure Christian's dad was like, look, dude, you know, it's my alma mater. You're going to get a great education. And that you're not going to have to stretch the imaginations of these poor scouts who are going to be looking at you. They're going to know right away what you can do, and you've proven it beyond a shadow of a doubt. I think he can do pretty. He can run pretty much any scheme you want him to run because he's got the speed to run the gap style and hit it hard. But he's got the patience and creativity to run the zone style, the the zone scheme, and he's a good, he's a good receiver. So you put that all together, and it's like, do you want him to be Deion Lewis? In New England, he could be Deion Lewis in New England. Do you want him to be Brian Westbrook in a you know in a West Coast offense? He can do that too. Do you want him to be you know a combo of Devonta Freeman and Tevin Coleman? Yeah, sure. Why not? You know, I mean that's so in that sense he's a he's one of the safest prospects. Um, is he going to be an absolute superstar? He might be because of the way the offenses are in the league now. I mean, it's, ins- you know, as, as a, a guy who's middle-aged now, I think of the 2008 class because this was a very, it compares favorably to that. And in 2008, Leonard Fournette would have been the safest pick in this class. And everyone would be questioning whether McCaffrey, with his skill sets, you know, maybe he's more of a specialty player. Now it's completely flipped on its head. You know, Fournette's the guy who everybody's going, well, I don't know, he's a scheme fit kind of guy. And, I, and you know, the old the old school kind of football fan and analyst in me wants to go, are you kidding me? Leonard Fournette is the guy that everyone's like wondering about, (laughs) you know, but it's true and it's valid. And that's just about changing, you know, and changing with the times. And so that I don't become that old man that says, get off my front lawn. You know, I have to, you know, you have to understand that and go, yeah, Christian McCaffrey's the safest pick and might have the most upside. Yeah, I mean, McCaffrey's such an interesting player, and and, and he's, uh, I think, such a, a fascinating player to watch where he ends up and, and kind of what that fit ends up being like and how people use him. But I, I think he kind of ends up almost like an, you know, like O.J. Howard in a way, where the 49ers likely aren't going to be in a position to take him, right? When you, when you think about where he's likely to go, it's kind of in that mid-late first round area is, is where everybody seems to kind of place him um, and, and so I just don't know that there's a scenario that plays out there where the 49ers have an opportunity to make that pick. And then, plus you, you look at some things like, you know, obviously the, the fact that we mentioned already that they have Carlos Hyde in place and that he's going to be their feature back and, and that you look at what, you know, the Shanahan family has done and, and, you know, Bobby Turner has been the running backs coach there for both Kyle and Mike. And, and they really have made their living on finding running backs late or even undrafted and, and turning them into productive players. So uh, I'm curious. I, and I, I think when you look at the makeup of the, the running back depth chart for San Francisco right now, too, like it seems to make a lot of sense that that they would add a back, but that they might add somebody that's a little bit more of a receiving threat and try to find that, you know, Tevin Coleman type of player. And, and so I'm curious, who do you think, you know, that might be available there on day three is somebody that sticks out that, that, that is a very good, kind of receiving threat and might be a good fit in that offense. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are a few players. I mean, certainly if you're going to look at a guy, 
you could go from that specialty angle and say, do you want a scat back who can catch the ball and kind of be a threat and put him outside, but also on third downs he can run draw plays and be and be real troublesome. Tariq Cohen, the you know the kid out of North Carolina A and T, is very exciting in that regard. He can also offer you that punt return, kick return skill, um, and he's unbelievably elusive, catches the ball well, um, and so he might fit in that range. T.J. Logan is a good return specialist who might develop into that type of a player with that type of speed. I think he's a pretty rugged guy, a safer pick who probably isn't that exciting but could give you a a really steady, underrated, like, let's clear out, you know, in two years, we don't want, we're not going to have Tim Hightower, we're probably not going to have Dewan Harris, and we're probably not going to have Mike Davis, but we could replace him with, you know, we, we could replace those three guys with one guy. Matthew Days out of North Carolina State is an interesting player. Even though he's not unbelievably fast, he's a good pass protector. He can catch the ball, and he's a good running back who makes good, smart decisions. Um, so those are guys that right off the bat kind of kind of hit it for me. Um, a later guy who, if Carlos Hyde can't stay healthy, who can do it all for you, might be Jamal Williams. Um, Jamal Williams out of BYU, the guy I comped him to, you guys probably know well in your youth is Ricky Waters. I think he has a Ricky Waters like skill set. Um and I think he's a very underrated back who who knows how to pound it between the tackles, plays bigger than his than his size indicates. He's about two twelve. Everyone thought he was about two twenty because of the way that he played and his tall you know, tall um you know, profile, but he's quicker and better at change of direction than his times really indicate. When you look at it on film, it's there. He's very smart, and he's an excellent pass protector, and he's a better receiver than maybe advertised because they didn't throw him the ball an awful lot, but when they did, he made good plays. And then the last guy I will mention who it might be a stud, like would be a steal, is Aaron Jones out of UTEP, who catches the ball like nobody's business. I mean, this guy goes up and wins back shoulder plays. He wins 50-50 balls. You can throw him up the seam past a linebacker and under a safety, and he's going to make that over-the-shoulder catch. And I will add one more, Joseph Yerby. He's another one who, Dalvin Cook's former teammate in high school, who got bumped by uh, Mark Walton in Miami this year. But Joseph Yerby can ball. And he's a guy who plays tough, who's very quick, and could wind up being a starter in this league as an undrafted free agent um, with the right team. Um, but I'd say he's probably more likely your, you know, your, your Giovanni Bernard, Ahmad Bradshaw type of player. But again... That fits very well with what you guys are talking about looking at. So I'm curious really quickly about one final player um, because this is another player where, you know, the Internet and draft Twitter has him ranked quite a bit differently than you have him ranked. And I know that they're let's talk about tiers, really, because I think that the rankings are, are I think it's good to think of them as pockets, not necessarily as linear one, two, three, four and five. And you've got Alvin Kamara out of Tennessee in your fourth tier for running backs. And yet you look at someone like you look at PFF's draft guide and they've got him as their fourth ranked overall running back. So that there's a bit of a disparity there. What is it about Alvin Kamara that you see that, that maybe doesn't jump out on you in terms of tape that maybe you think other people might be seeing and, and extrapolating perhaps a bit much. Sure. And I can't speak for PFF, but I know that there are a lot of people that loved guys like, Oh, Bishop Sankey, 
and Niall Davis and Andre Williams, and those were guys that I was very low on compared to most of the consensus. And Kamara, to me, fits within that spectrum of player. And what do all those guys have in common is that athletically there was something eye-popping about them, um, but conceptually they didn't make great decisions. So even though they were maybe productive and they graded out well because they produced, um, the the way they got those numbers – didn't fit with what you're looking for in the NFL. And I think that's the case with Kamara. Kamara's a guy who catches the ball reasonably well. You get him out in space, and he's dangerous because he's got the balance that if you try and reach for him, he's going to run through it because he runs with pretty good balance and force, and he can bounce off multiple hits. Um, But asking him to run between the tackles, he's not very wise about that right now. He's got that mentality that he thinks he can bounce everything outside. He's got the mentality that even when he has the easy gain um, up the middle, he'll get two yards into that gain when he should have about, you know, four or five more steps to go and get the easy five to seven yards. And he'll go, oh, I see this little pocket on the outside in the flat that I can stop, reverse my field a little bit and bounce outside. And I might hit a 60-yard run here and end up losing two yards on the play when he already had two yards gained before he made that decision. Um or not remembering to stay in bounds or not remembering to get out of bounds late in the game. You know, lots of little mistakes like that and a lot of them based on just not being focused or not being mature and leaning too much on your athletic ability. And those are issues that keep you off the field, that keep you from being an every down back. Um, Now, he might be used as a space player and be a very good one, and I think that that's likely for him. But there's one big if with that. He fumbles the ball once every 41 carries during his career. Um, You know, for an average NFL player who's a starter, you're looking at probably somewhere around once every 80 to 90 carries. Um, So he fumbles the ball twice as much as just your average starter. Um, (laughs) You're not going to get on the field that way. You're not going to stay on the field that way if you continue to, to have that. And so people say, oh, well, he'll get better and he'll do that. Yeah, well, did Lawrence Moroni get better at it? Did, um, you know, did David Wilson get better at it? You know, did Steve, Stevon Ridley get better at it? It's not a, it's not an automatic thing. Look, maybe and he's so, just got overactive swipe lands. Okay. Right. Maybe, right. He, just, maybe he just needs maybe four arm pads. Green and you got to give him that little sleeve. You got to you know? give him some sleeves. Okay. That's what That's we need. Right. <laughs> and look, Alvin, Alvin, Alvin grew up down the street from where I live, you know, probably, you know, not more than 25, 30 minutes from where, from from where I live and grew up as well. You know, he's a local guy. I'd like to see him do well. Um, but at the same time, you know, when you look at these things, mature decision-making, C.J. Spiller didn't have it, and he was an ungodly athlete, you know, and protecting the ball. If you can't, if you can't take the gains that are there and you put your team in, you know, second and 15 or third and nine when you could have had a third and two, and you're turning the ball over, you know, I don't care how exciting you are. And so to me, he is much lower on my board until he corrects those things. All right. So final question that we've got before we let you go again, this has been another jam packed episode with lots of names. I've actually been jotting them down so we can put them in the episode recap in case folks need to go and pick up some uh, and watch some film on them. But presuming that the Niners go with a skill position player at the top of round two, of the people that we've mentioned, or maybe even people that we haven't mentioned, 
what player or just set of players do you think would fit what Kyle Shanahan wants to do, um, but also have kind of some good value that you would think, you know what, you pick this guy up the top of the second round, and uh, and I think that would that could prove to be beneficial for the 49ers. Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, I'm not a great round projection guy, so some of these guys are not going to be anywhere near that. So I'm just going to look at based for me on talent and guesstimation. Do it. That's good you enough know. for us. Okay, cool. So Corey Davis, if he drops far enough, you know, or maybe they trade into the end of the first round because he can run good routes and he's physical enough. So he fits that kind of mold of what Lynch is looking after. Um, and I think that he can provide you um, the type of player who can – you know, be a Muhammad Sanu plus type of player. Another guy is our Darius Stewart, who I like a lot because I think he can play outside, but you can also move him around. So as your team grows, he could end up playing multiple roles for you. Um, Chris Godwin is a decent route runner. Um, and I think he's kind of interesting in that regard where he can give you kind of that Greg Jennings type of look. Um, so you can get work with him in the middle of the field because he's tough, but he can also play outside. Um, so those are some guys that fit the mold. But I'd say if you can get a tight end at the top of the second round, you can get a guy like David Njoku or you could get, you know, uh, you know, maybe even a little bit later on. I mean, I guess – I think Njoku probably will go in the first round, but if Bucky Hodges is there, and if they're they're not um, on the same page as some of the internet guys who say Bucky Hodges is is soft, this guy makes the best big boy catches I've seen um, this year. Because man, he goes up and wins that ball in tight coverage, and he's six six two fifty seven and runs a four five seven forty. You can put him outside. I think you can put him out on the wing right now. I think he, I think he has enough potential to become a better blocker than people estimate him to be, and he's a freak of an athlete. I mean, he could be that Jimmy Graham type of difference maker um, that you could filter out of the backfield. So those are some guys that I I look at right away, and I think that are interesting options to consider. So Bucky Hodges is actually someone who I thought was super interesting because in in the RSP you say that you'd rank him if if you were a wide receiver you'd rank him potentially number three on the board. And, and yeah. I'm curious which tier that puts him in. Because if you look at your wide receiver tier, again, this is not a lot of, you know, kind of overall number one type of wide receiver. So would, you, would, would that put him tier one or tier two in your eyes this year? Because that's, that's, pretty, I mean, that's pretty amazing, right? That, that's a solid overall wide receiver type, split out wide tight end, which can be awesome. And we know that learning how to block in the NFL is, you know, can be a, a couple of year type of process. Vernon Davis went through that his rookie and second year. He didn't come into the NFL as a refined blocker, but he learned how to do that. And that became a strength of his game. So I'm curious how good of a receiver you would put Bucky Hodges at right now. If he's number three, what tier does that put him in? Tier one. It Holy hell. Top tier. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Man, you, you got to you gotta, go, go on YouTube go on draft breakdown and go watch him make plays because seriously it, it's it's almost funny that I'm I'm watching this because everybody's like you look at OJ Howard and yes he's the top all around tight end on the board and whether it's his fault because the team didn't trust him enough to be the go-to guy which I don't think's really the case it, it's possible but I think that's more speculation what's the real case is probably that Alabama didn't have good enough quarterbacks to throw in the middle of the field an awful lot. They ran the ball. They knew that was their strength, and they wanted him to block. So they threw outside. They blocked inside, and that was kind of the game with O.J. Howard. 
but we don't know if he's going to make unbelievable tight catches in, in coverage on fade routes and go routes and seam routes and slants where he's got to face tight press man coverage and fade routes in the end zone where he's got to be split outside and face a, a cover corner. Bucky Hodges did all that week after week after week. He did it with um, Josh Evans, who was I think is an underrated quarterback prospect, and he did it with guys that we don't even know who they are if, if we're just casual college fans who weren't remotely as good as Josh Evans, and he was still doing it back then. He lays out for the ball like nobody's business. Um, so he may be soft as a blocker right now, but I got to tell you, I'm – I'm not one to trust grades on players because there's so much variation that's involved as someone from an operations sector. You have to be really good at training people who multiple people delivering grades for you and know that everybody's on the same page and that they're spending time actually calibrating to do all that. And I got to tell you, most most people talk a good talk, but they don't walk that walk well because I used to I used to grade people on that in different branches of, of, of companies. And I know in, in, in an industry where people say they do that stuff that they often don't, and there's lots of variation and gaps of how players get graded. So for me to hear that Bucky Hodges is soft, I, I look at that and I say, I'm kind of find that suspect, especially when I watched him play and I thought, you know, if, you th- if you're going to say Evan Ingram can be a serviceable wing blocker, um, right now, I think Bucky Hodges can do the exact same thing, and I think Bucky Hodges is an all-around better receiver than Evan Ingram because Evan Ingram has difficulty catching balls that are thrown below his waist. Um, he's better. He's better in the air, and he's a dynamic player, and he's going to be a very good one. But I take Bucky Hodges as a receiver all day long. Well, Matt, this has been another fantastic hour. I'm glad to have you back on for the uh, the third annual kind of draft episode. We've got. A couple of core questions that we're looking to get answered over the next three episodes or so. So we appreciate you coming on and and helping us clarify some of those. Uh, Again, for those of you listening, you can get Matt Waldman's rookie scouting portfolio on his website, mattwaldman.com. You can also follow him at Twitter uh, on Twitter. I think it's just at Matt Waldman. Correct, Matt? Simple as that. All right, man. You've got a brand, uh, Mr. Matt Waldman. Thanks again for coming on, man. It's been a blast. Hey, It's absolutely my pleasure. All right, man. That about wraps it up. That does it. That's a it's a jam packed episode, man. We always go long when we go with Matt, but it, I I feel like it's worth it. Yeah, I mean Matt uh, just gives us a lo- a lot of interesting information. I mean he, he he kind of sees things a little bit differently than than you see with a lot of the other draft community. Um, and it's just yeah, I mean he 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 knows his shit. I mean he's just rattling guys off and and skill sets off, uh, and it's it's pretty impressive. So I mean, was there were there any names that that you liked going into it that you kind of uh, had reiterated by Matt that, that you're like, okay, I'm starting to get, I'm I'm starting to get on this guy's bandwagon a little bit. Yeah, there were a couple one and and I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I knew about these names or knew about these people before I read his draft kind of breakdown and of the names that I read in there. And I was like, huh, that could be an an interesting skill set. I did think Jeremy Sprinkle would be an interesting person. I did think someone like Bucky Hodges would be interesting at tight end. When you're looking at uh, when you're looking at White or I'm sorry, running backs, I thought Tarek Cohen, um, and that's pretty much it. I was interested in Alvin Kamara just because I'd read a bit about him, and, and he seemed to be high on a lot of people's draft boards. But uh, Matt didn't have him high, so th- those were the people that I was kind of looking to get a little bit of information about, and and I absolutely did. I think that 
there's a lot of value at tight end this year. And and I think that if we could get a tight end, even though we've drafted some tight ends and, and I am on the on the belldozer train, I do think given our offensive system, that tight end is really a place where we can really we can really make an impact addition to the offense, even if that pick is in round three or even potentially round four. Yeah, I kind of like the idea of of going, you know, tight end earlier than receiver necessarily, because, uh, you know, one of the things he really kind of reinforced for me and something that I was starting to to, to lean toward was this idea that you, you don't really have a lot of, uh, you know, when I think of number one receiver, right, I'm, I'm going and that term gets tossed around a lot. Like for me, that definition is is kind of the scheme transcendent player, right? The, this this person that can fit into any offense and be productive and kind of carry that passing game, and and it really doesn't seem like there are those type of players in this draft. It, it yeah. is going to be even players. John Ross is yeah. kind of a scheme dependent guy. Like I love the guy. I think he's yeah, awesome, definitely. and I love watching him play. But he is even a, a scheme dependent guy. Yeah, you need somebody that knows you know how to use his skills you know you think of you know the, the comparison that he threw out with Deshaun Jackson um, again you need somebody that knows how to take advantage of that skill set so I don't think there's really uh, anybody at the top that warrants say that like that number two selection or even if they were to trade back into to the latter half of the the top 10 say I don't know that there's somebody that I feel super comfortable taking at that position so you move now to tight end and, and look at the options that you're going to have on day two. And I think that's really an area, especially if they're able to trade down. I mean, that's one of the big reasons I, I, I kind of want to try to move down uh, at the top of the first is, is to grab another pick there because you, you look at tight end, you look at, and, and we're going to get into defense later, but I mean, the secondary, the edge class is, is really kind of loaded there. So I think, in that day two range is really where you have an opportunity to add a lot of quality players to your roster. And, and so, yeah, somebody like Bucky Hodges, uh, I, I think, I mean, dude tested out at like a near 95th percentile, uh, in, in spark. Um, and you know, you heard all of the, the stuff that Matt had to say about his ability as a receiver and to win contested catches. So I, I just, yeah, I think they have, uh, the ability to add somebody that that's more impactful at tight end on day two than they could potentially add early at wide receiver. So really two or three other takeaways before, before we wrap everything up. One is our Darius Stewart, not just the cool ass name, but someone <laughs> who, uh, you know, he, he's listed as a big slot guy. I thought he might fit as, as more of a small slot guy. I don't know that he's someone the Niners will target based on the fact that they probably want a lot of speed speed because, you know, that, I think that's how Kyle Shanahan likes to build his teams. But I think a name to watch. And uh, the other person I think that he mentioned at the tight end position is Seathan Carter. That's C-E-T-H-A-N Carter. Uh, mentioned him as a sudden route runner. I think that's another name that you should watch. Uh, and then lastly is going to be Joseph Yearby. Really, the most notable thing about Joseph Yearby is that I thought his name was Joseph Uribe <laughs> because I'm brown. Damn it! Yeah, it's it's. I, I thought when he when I legit when I was typing his name, I wrote Joseph Uribe. And I had and, to I had to highlight that shit and be like, Nah, that's not how you spell his name. And my retort to that <laughs> was Uribe. I'm brown. Damn it. <laughs> that's that's mostly my takeaway. I mean, that's fair. I'm brown. Guess, yeah, I'm brown. Damn it. I mean, it's you're not wrong. I'm, nope, I'm, I ain't wrong. I can see you right now. 
That's true. I'm not wrong. It's true. <laughs> it's true. And I am wearing my old lady glasses for those of you who commented on that during our drunk prospecting video. Um, so I think that about does it for this week. Uh, probably a longer episode than normal. But you know what? It's worth it. And you know what? Break it up over a couple days. You'll be all right. You'll live. Uh, a lot of draft so, content to get to. So A lot yeah. of draft content. We're going to try and pack it in here. Uh, really, the only thing that's left is the call to action. Uh, I've got a couple. Uribe being the one that jumps to my mind. I mean, that's uh, a good, solid one. But but we also have Drafturbate. Uh, <laughs> because you know what? It's going to be uh, it's gonna be one of those types of months. It's, it's an all-draft month here. <laughs> answering a lot of questions uh, solo, you know, and we really want to come to fruition with a lot of the conclusions that we're trying to put together here. So that's, you know, uh, that's what I, we're going I, with here. I'm, I'm a choose your own adventure type of, uh, you know, call to action guy. You know, yep. you, you want to do your eBay because you're brown. That's fine. Um, you want you want to do uh, what was don't the other be, one? Don't be boxed in by that. Don't be boxed no. in. You can you can do you can do rebay. You can do draftster bait. Draft you can bait. even there do hashtag yeah. choose your own adventure. You yeah. can do whatever you want. You know, we don't make. I mean, okay, we kind of make the rules, but you know, you, we, we you do. Can do what you we want. do make the rules. Yeah, we do indeed. <laughs> uh, but that about does it for this week's edition of the Better Rivals podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. You can always follow me on the Twitters. Uh, that is at Better Rivals. David, where can they follow you? That's going to be at Newman NFL. Again, if you want to get to the names of the players that Matt Waldman mentioned, we will put them on the write-up at Niners Nation. You can just go to NinersNation.com uh, and, and you can see the, the page there or you can see our post there on the front page uh, or go to the Better Rivals section on that page. And so definitely appreciate you all tuning in again this week. And as always... Go Niners. Hi, I'm Karis Fisher. I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Recode Decode. Every week I talk to tech and media's key players about how they're changing our world. I interview tech executives like Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, political figures like Hillary Clinton, and media personalities like John Kerryu, who literally wrote the book on Theranos. Once again, the name of the show is Recode Decode, hosted by me, Kara Swisher. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. See you there.